Our Bible reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, and Salma is going to lead us in that. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What, do, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats br the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sin against the body and, of, and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about other matters when I come. So as uh, you by now no doubt know, uh, at our synod, um, not this past week but the week before, we agreed that we would change our practice as to how we celebrate the Lord's Supper in our churches. Now, uh, for context, uh, our position as a denomination has been that any person who has made a public profession of faith and who is living a faithful Christian life is welcome at the Lord's Supper. Now, the reason for this is that Scripture takes a pretty serious view about what happens when we don't eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner, as per our text. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we always warn people, don't come to this table unless you are turning from your sin, unless you believe in Jesus, otherwise you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. And our text is the biblical warrant for that position. 
Paul here writes that the reason a number of people in the church at Corinth seem to have died, gotten sick and died, is because they were eating and drinking without recognizing the body, verse 29. And therefore they had been eating and drinking judgment on themselves, which is why they got sick and, and died, in fact. And so the Bible takes a pretty serious view of how we approach the Lord's Supper. Now, in order to make sure that we don't do that, uh, the church has put into place this culture of self-examination. In many churches still today, in the week before the Lord's Supper is celebrated, in the Reformed churches at least, uh, the, the congregation members are called to examine themselves. Um, but we've kind of misunderstood what that actually means in the context of what Paul is writing here. What does it actually mean to eat and drink the bread uh, and the cup in an unworthy manner? In what way is a person to examine themselves in order to join in at the Lord's Supper? What does it mean to recognize the body, as Paul writes here? And what does all of this have to do with a public profession of faith? And how is any of this even remotely related to children participating in the Lord's, uh, Lord's Supper? And so today we're going to be grappling with these questions. We're going to ask uh, seven questions. We're going to go basically back to, um, uh, to the basics and we're going to ask these six questions. What is the Lord's Supper? Who can participate in the Lord's Supper? How are participants to participate in the Lord's Supper? What do people need to do before they participate in the Lord's Supper? How does this apply to children? And so practically, how will this look at Wonga Park? So today I have a six-point sermon. Normally I have a three-point sermon, which is 30 minutes. Uh, so now I have a six-point sermon, so you better strap in. Um, no, look, I'll, I'll try to be succinct, uh, succinct, but it is important for us to genuinely grapple with these things because the Lord's Supper is one of only two sacraments, right? So we've got to make sure that we, do, we kind of get this right as God has revealed to us in, um, in, in His Word. And so in the time remaining, I will attempt to answer all those questions. Question one, what is the Lord's Supper? Now, at first glance, this seems like an obvious question, but have you tried to define it? Even our confessions, our doctrinal standards, the, the things that we subscribe to as the right and good summary of what, uh, what we believe, none of them define the Lord's Supper. We simply assume that everyone knows what this thing is that we're doing. And so here then is my perhaps clumsy attempt to define what the Lord's Supper actually is. It's a number of different things. Firstly, it's a sacrament. It is a sacred thing. It has been set aside by God as a means of grace. It's one of the ways in which He actually gives us a real physical experience of His grace in this world. It's a physical meal that helps us remember His real physical death. Uh, it is actual bread and wine. These elements, the bread and the wine, are to remind us of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus said, whenever you eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me. It is, uh, the thing that we are to remember is that our sins are forgiven. So this meal, this sacrament, reminds us of His death on the cross and what happens there. It is to remind us that our sins have been forgiven. That's why Jesus says in verse 29 that this is a cup of the new covenant in His blood. It reminds us, um, and that phrase reminds us of the old covenant. You know, in Exodus 24 verse 8, Moses 
took the blood and he splatters it on the people and he says, this is the blood of the covenant of the Lord who has uh, made this covenant with you. Um, and so when Jesus quotes, he's essentially quoting Moses and saying, this is the new covenant. No longer do you need to be sprinkled by the blood of these sacrifices to be clean of your sin. You are now clean because I give my life for you. And so the meal is supposed to remind us that God's people have been cleansed, that, that our sins have been forgiven by the sprinkling of the ultimate blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus is saying that when you do this, when you come together to celebrate this, remember that it is His blood, the blood of the perfect Lamb, that, has, uh, that is sprinkled over us to cleanse us from our sin. And so uh, it's, it's a physical meal that's supposed to remind us of a real spiritual reality. But the last thing we need to understand is that the Lord's Supper is actually a family meal as well. It is set aside for people that are part of God's family. It is to be celebrated as a church family together. Now, the situation in Corinth, where, which this letter was written about, is actually really helpful about this particular point. So what's happening in Corinth is that um, the church would gather in someone's house, probably the house of a wealthy believer because, you know, they had space. Uh, now, in the culture of the day, the rich people, the influential people would sit down for a meal in, in one of the inner rooms in the house. And then the have-nots would be outside in the courtyard. And then the church would have this meal together. And so they would share the Lord's Supper, perhaps at the conclusion of this, of this meal. But what ended up happening is that the rich, the influential, would be fed first. They would get all the choice portions of the food, and so they would have their Lord's Supper portions first, perhaps even privately alone, not together as a church family. And by the time it came down to those who, who had nothing, perhaps they had run out. The, the wealthy had already finished, and the poor never even got the chance to eat in the first place. And so what Paul says to them is that they are foolish. They've missed one of the key elements of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It is a family meal. This is something we do together. And he says that uh, the division that this is causing amongst the Corinthian church is actually kind of necessary because it, it highlights who the selfish people really are, the ones who eat their own supper without thinking of the rest of the family. When you think about what he's saying for a second, you, you kind of realize the weight of what he's saying. He says, if you're eating the Lord's Supper selfishly, if you're eating it on your own, you are in fact acting as if you don't even believe in the first place. Because when you do that, he says, you are pointing yourself out as a non-believer. It is a meal to be shared as a family of God's people together. And in fact, Paul explicitly uses the phrase there in verse 18. He says, when you come together as a church. Now we need to understand that in the Greek, this is almost technical jargon for specifically what it means to come together as a church, to gather together as a chosen body. That's, that's the words he uses. And so in the context of the Lord's Supper, it is to be shared with the body of believers. If you celebrate it apart from the body of believers... Paul says you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. You might call it the Lord's Supper, you might think it's the Lord's Supper, but if you are doing this outside of the family of God, that's not what it is. And so the Lord's Supper is a meal for the church family together. Not a group of friends, 
not an individual to celebrate by themselves, not even as a family unit. It is a meal for the church family, for the body of believers as they gather as a church under the leadership of the eldership as a church then. And the Lord's Supper is also a real spiritual blessing where by faith we actually truly partake of Jesus' body and blood. It is in this same sacrament that, that what we celebrate is the same sacrament that was passed on from the apostles to Paul, to the Corinthian church and on to us. The Lord's Supper is still the same Lord's Supper today as it was in the early church. Now, exactly how we do it has changed a little bit, but it's still the same supper. And so when we celebrate this today, we're celebrating it not just in the context of our local church family, but actually with the church body over the last 2,000 years together. We are all celebrating the same family meal at the same time. And in this Lord's Supper, we experience real spiritual blessings of Christ. In this meal, we are assured that just as truly as we take hold of the bread and the wine in our hands and as, as we eat it with our, with our mouths, so truly in our souls, for our spiritual life, the true body and the true blood of Jesus Christ is joined with us. We receive these by faith. Now, we don't know exactly what that means or how that works, but that's what's happening. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come uh, to know Jesus in a way that we can't otherwise. We come, in a sense, to ingest him and he becomes part of us, to know him in a way that we could not otherwise. And that's why it's called a sacrament. It is a means of grace, of sharing in the life and uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so this then leads us to the next question. Let's assume all of that's true. Who then participates in the Lord's Supper? Again, this seems like a fairly obvious question. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the church body, for the church family. So the church body are the people that are to be uh, participating. But who is the church body? It's believers, it's anyone who lives with Jesus as their Lord. People who understand that they are sinners and they are in need of a saviour. Who have come to ask forgiveness of Christ Jesus and who have accepted this free gift of grace and now who seek to live in obedience to him. Now the way that the Reformed churches have measured this in the past is through a public profession of faith. We have tended to wait until a child is sort of 16, 17, 18 years old and we take them through a catechism class, right? And then once they graduate from that class, once they, in essence, graduate from Sunday school, they get to do their public profession of faith and then become communicant members of the church. They can now participate in the Lord's Supper. But friends, the problem is that Completing a catechism class or a, or a theology class or whatever doesn't actually mean that you have faith in Jesus. And actually not completing that very same class doesn't mean you don't have faith in Jesus. Professional faith classes actually have nothing to do with whether one can actually profess your faith or not. A public profession of faith has, is no guarantee that a person has true faith either. Now, of course, it is a great moment for someone who does have true faith to be able to come uh, to the church um, as the, and to do a public profession of faith, kind of as this marker of taking on their, their faith for themselves and responsibility for that themselves. It's, uh, we always assume that that is a true and genuine faith. 
But there have in fact been many people who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus who did not have faith in Jesus. There are many who have publicly professed their faith, faith who have later walked away from Christ. And so when we consider who can come to the Lord's Supper table on the basis of having done a public profession of faith, it's practically unhelpful and not really actually all that biblical. So participation in the Lord's Supper shouldn't be on the basis of having done a public profession of faith. It's on the basis of actually having faith. Not whether or not you've jumped through the hoop of doing this public profession at the end of your Sunday school schooling. And in fact, that is partly Paul's point here. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do so in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. The bread and the wine are to, remember, to remind us of the one who did these things for us. You do it in remembrance of Jesus. And you can't partake in remembrance if you don't believe the thing that, are, that you are supposed to be remembrancing, right? You can't do that unless you actually have faith. And so it is believers who are to come to the Lord's Supper table, whether they've done a public profession or not. And so... If that's the case, then how are believers, participants, then to participate in the Lord's Supper? That's question uh, three. The short answer is you are to participate as a church family. The whole point of the Corinthians passage is in fact that the Corinthian Christians were not participating in the Lord's Supper as a family because they weren't sharing it together. The whole, you know, there's no more slave or free, Jew or Gentile thing seems to not have filtered through to the practice of sharing in this communion meal. When you come together, you are to come together as a church family, as a body of believers, where there is no distinction between the wealthy and the poor, between the slave and the free, uh, and so on. The Lord's Supper is ultimately one of the great unifying signs of the church. It is, uh, it is a sign that before Jesus we are all equal. We have all fallen short uh, and, and not lived up to God's standard. We all come to Christ with nothing to our name. We all come to Christ in faith that Jesus will forgive our sins on the basis of His um, work, not on our work. The church is not a place where there is space for divisions of race and age and culture or financial status. We are all brothers and sisters together and so the meal is to be taken as a big family meal. So who is to participate? Believers. Everyone who is part of the family of God and how are they to participate? As a family. Which leads us to our next question. What then do you have to do before you can participate? What do these participants need to do before they participate? Well, let's look at our text. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats uh, the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. So what's going on here? Now the people here had been, uh, someone just shut that door or open that door or clip it in, please. Um, 
People have been eating the Lord's Supper, gorging themselves while the poor have gotten nothing. And so this meal that was supposed to be this great sign of unity in the church has been replaced with a meal that reinforces the divisions that existed between the haves and the have-nots. And so when Paul writes here that, um, that they have been eating and drinking or in an unworthy manner, uh, manner, that is what he's referring to. And so a person is to examine themselves to see what is in their heart. So what are they supposed to be examining themselves for? What is it in the heart that they are needing to discern? Friends, hear me clearly. This is where we have gotten it wrong, I think, or where over time our understanding of this has drifted into the wrong place. We often read this scripture in the context of the Lord's Supper because it's in our Lord's Supper forms. And so we think, okay, I've got to examine myself to make sure that I am worthy to come to the Lord's Supper. We've taken this passage and applied it to make sure that that I'm okay before God, that I'm good enough today, that, that I've been good enough this week, that I can come to the Lord's Supper table. And when this goes to the extreme, we can be frightened to come to the Lord's Supper table because maybe I've got an unconfessed sin that I, that I haven't even thought of. Maybe there's something in my heart that hasn't been redeemed yet. Oh no, I'm not good enough. I'm too sinful. I'm unworthy of coming because I'm still so sinful. Brother and sister, it is exactly because you feel like this that you should come. To feel like that is to miss the point. None of us are worthy of coming to the Lord's Supper. To participate in an unworthy manner does not mean that we have looked at our lives and realized that we still have sin. None of us have our sin sorted out. And in fact, the more sorry we are for our sinful state, the more welcome we should feel at this meal. The examination called for here is not an examination to see whether we have lived up to God's standard. Because frankly, none of us have. So what then are we to examine ourselves for? If it isn't to make sure that we're good enough to come to the table, then what is it there for? It is, we are to examine to make sure that we have recognised the body. Now that's a tricky phrase and it probably means two different things. It is ambiguous actually in the Greek and probably intentionally so. What is the body that we are to recognise? I think firstly it is the body uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. The supper after all is a remembering of his body that was, that was um, put on the cross and his blood which flowed for us, which was given for us for our forgiveness of our sins. If we are incapable of recognising what we are remembering, then we shouldn't come to the table. Does the bread remind you of his body? Does the wine or the juice remind you of his blood? Can you appreciate that these physical signs are given by Christ to help us remember his death for you? If the answer is yes, then you have recognised the body. You You have done the thing. So that's the first type of body you are to recognise. The second is the body of the church, the body of believers. In the context of 1 Corinthians, it was precisely because the Corinthian Christians were not recognising the church body, the body of believers, that they've gone wrong. 
They've taken this feast reminding them of the unity they have with Christ and with each other and replaced it with a social symbol of status and division. And so the examination we need to undergo, the things we need to ask ourselves is, am I doing anything that is bringing division into the church? Is my life breaking apart the unity of the congregation? Are my actions stirring unrest within the church or excluding some people from feeling like they are part of the family? If so, then you should not be taking the Lord's Supper. And so that's what it means to examine yourself, to make sure that you are... It's not to make sure that you are worthy, because you're not, but to make sure that you are recognising the body of Christ and recognising the body of believers. To make sure that you recognise that Jesus died to pay for your sins and that you are not doing anything to disrupt or destroy or divide the church community. And that's where church discipline ultimately comes into it. If a person is living a life and by the life they are living shows through their actions that they're not living as if Jesus has died for them, that they are living in active rebellion or where they're trying to split apart the church community, They are to be excluded from the community meal because they are not recognising the body. And the local eldership is responsible for doing that. When an eldership excludes someone from the Lord's Supper, it is a way of saying, we're starting to treat you as an unbeliever because your life reflects the life of someone who doesn't trust in Jesus. Now this may sound harsh, but it is actually more loving to to wake the person up to their life of sin than to let them keep on going, ultimately to leave Jesus behind forever. And so in this way, the aim of excluding someone from this church meal is to, to really shake them awake and to say, your rebellion is causing this division. And that's what church discipline is all about. Okay, so believers are to come to the table, we're to come as a church family, Uh, we're to come having examined ourselves to see whether we recognise the body, Jesus, and the body of the church. And then the critical question is, how does this apply to children? In short, we treat our children as covenant children. Children who have all the benefits of being part of the covenant community, of being part of the body of believers. We treat the faith of our children generously, as if they have faith already, based on the fact that they are part of the covenant community, i.e. because they've been baptised and born into a family where at least one parent is a believer. So essentially we assume that our children are believers until they show us otherwise. Now this might sound strange, but when you think about it, that's how we already treat our children. When we give them the sign of baptism, we are saying you are part of the church body. Even though we know that one day they will have to accept and come to their own personal personal faith. When we get up on a Sunday morning, we get our children to get dressed and hop in the car and we bring them to church, a place where the body of believers gather because we want them to grow in their love and obedience to Christ, don't we? We treat them as if they already have faith. When we discipline our children, we do so on the basis that they are supposed to be different from the children of unbelievers. Again, we assume 
their faith. We treat them as believers until they show us otherwise. And so because children can, in their childlike way, do all of the things they're necessary to participate in the Lord's Supper, there is no reason why we should hinder them from coming. But we do need to do that carefully. Carefully and generously. Generously assuming their faith, but carefully making sure that the guidance and requirements that are in this text actually apply to our children. And so then what does this look like in practice? Now, this is a little bit small, but this is the guidelines our denomination has given us. First of all, our children must profess faith in Jesus and be baptised. Not in the sense of a public profession of faith, but in the context perhaps of a family uh, where the parents believe that the child has faith. That's part of the process. Secondly, they must have age-appropriate evidence of this faith being lived out. Uh, if you can't read that, don't worry, this will come out by email to you as well. Okay. Um, Thirdly, they must understand that the bread represents Jesus' body and the wine and juice represents his blood. They must be able to discern the body, right? Fourthly, they need to understand that Jesus died for them, giving his body and blood to save them from their sins. So that's, that's the whole recognising the body thing and doing it in remembrance of Jesus. Fifthly, they must understand that they are part of a church family whom they are to love and serve. That is recognising the body of believers. And then finally, there you might, might be able to read that, sessions must take an active and intentional role in the profession process, consulting with the child and parents and other children's ministry workers where appropriate before session admits them to the Lord's Supper. Sessions are to actively supervise the child's participation in the Lord's Supper, addressing the child and the parents where there are concerns, pastorally applying church discipline as appropriate. Now, what does that mean? Uh, what does that look like in practice? Well, as you know, we are a church that uh, is deeply committed to parents having the ultimate responsibility for, responsibility for discipling their own children. We see your kids maybe two hours a week. We can't do that. We can't instill faith in them. That is the role of the parents. And so we will be trusting that the parents will be the ones to make the call as to whether or not a child is to come and participate in the Lord's Supper, unless we have very good reasons not to do so. So we're going to be producing some resources to help you as parents have the conversations with the kids around these points above, one, two, three, four, and five. And so parents will need to be wise in, in terms of when they let their children join in. So we probably recommend that you have these kinds of discussions with your kids do you understand what this represents and whatever do you believe that? Is there age-appropriate faith being lived out and so on? You will be best placed to make that call. On a really practical level, uh, now I haven't talked to Sarah about this yet, but in our family, at this stage, I'm very certain that Reuben will be able to meet all these points above. I am somewhat certain that Teddy will. I am very certain that Hugo will not. Uh, and so I'd be very comfortable for Reuben to join in. Uh, again, Sarah and I will still need to have some conversations with Teddy before we go there. Uh, and at this stage, we are not going to let Lucy and Hugo join in at this stage. 
because that's, I think, as parents, how we see the situation for our kids. And so that is children at the Lord's Supper. Now, what do you think about this? Let's break up into our groups and have a chat about it. So in your little booklet, you'll have discussion questions. The idea is not to get through all ten or whatever there are here, but at least the first four particularly explore what does it mean. And so we're going to spend a couple of minutes just uh, thinking about that together.
give you another minute or so uh, just to conclude your discussions. Let me encourage you to continue uh, this discussion after the service um, over coffee or tea. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, also you've got all the discussion questions in your little booklet. Maybe discuss these as a family together. That would be very helpful. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we can come and feast and remember uh, at a time where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, we pray now also for the use of these offerings which we have brought in response to what you have done for us. Lord, may you multiply their use for your kingdom um, and may you use them uh, as you see fit. And as we administer these in the various different ways, we pray that you will give uh, the church wisdom in the way it uses these funds uh, to dedicate it for your, you know, for your glory and to grow your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.